Deck Triathlon Show 248. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Professor John Hawley. John is one of the world's leading researchers on the cellular and molecular basis of endurance sports adaptations, and in particular, when it comes to adaptations within skeletal muscle. In this episode, we talk about things like uh, adaptations in skeletal muscle, as mentioned. We talk at length about the train low strategy, so training with low carbohydrate availability. We talk about how muscle fiber profile may influence training strategies. And we talk about the importance of peripheral compared with central adaptations. But before we get into the interview, big thanks to our sponsors. First, we have Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Precision Hydration create electrolyte products and they can be used to match your individual sweat sodium content. If you are somebody with a low concentration of sodium in your sweat, then you can go with their low concentration supplement. And they also have medium and high versions of that electrolyte supplement as well. And you can quickly and easily find out what you are by simply taking an online quiz that will give you a good ballpark estimate of where you stand. And this quiz has been validated against measurements taken with medical grade equipment in precision hydration labs. So it really will give you a good estimate and a good starting point for your dialing in your hydration strategy. You can get 15% off your order with the promo code DETTRIATHLONSHOW15 on precisionhydration.com. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Roka's wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear are trusted by uh, some of the most successful triathletes and other endurance athletes in the world, including uh, athletes like Javier Gomez, Lucy Charles Barclay, Mario Mola, Katie Safiris, and many, many more. So we're talking some of the best uh, of the best triathletes in the world, multiple, multiple world championships between them. These athletes are in a position where they can essentially pick and choose whatever equipment they want to use and uh, who they want to partner with. And it is testament to the great quality of Roka's products that so many of the best triathletes in the world are choosing to, to use Roka's products. If you want to try any Roka products, which I would highly recommend, then you can get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. Now, without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Professor John Hawley. Welcome back to that triathlon show. John, how are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. Um, strange since we last spoke, a lot has happened in the world, obviously. So I'm actually in lockdown uh, in Australia here. Things have gone a little bit uh, pear-shaped, but hopefully wherever you're listening to this, you're a little bit safer and uh, looking after one another. Yes, definitely. How, how are you managing to, to do your research projects and everything? I mean, getting people into a lab, obviously, is not possible, but are you managing to work around that with doing some sort of uh, remote setting studies or, or what what's your work looking like these days yeah it's a very good question i think uh, we'll look back in a couple of years and realize that most of us wrote a lot of review articles this year um because we didn't have original data luckily 
I've been able to keep some staff on. So our animal work and our cell culture work is still going. But as you correctly pointed out, the uh, human studies and clinical trials and exercise trials have come to a complete stop. And I guess it's unlikely that we'll be starting them until uh, till next year. So it's really just a year of missing action and uh, feel very, very sorry for a lot of the students who, of course, are, are just sitting on their hands, twiddling their thumbs, not really knowing what to do. So, yes, it's, um, it's a new world order, but I'm hoping we can start, you know, the exercise and nutrient studies back again next year. And uh, we'll just have to, to run very fast to, to catch up with the treadmill because we're a long way behind at the moment. Yeah, fingers crossed. So this interview will be about uh, the uh, skeletal muscle adaptations that uh, occur as a result of endurance training. And uh, let's just start, if you can give us an overview of what those the main adaptations that occur are. Sure. Well, look, I mean, I, I tend to look at things from a muscle-centric point of view. But of course, when we train, we've also got to, to remember that we're training many organs simultaneously the the heart the lungs and everything else i'm going to take a as i said a muscle centric view uh today and focus on some of those adaptations and i guess one of the earlier adaptations is that the trained muscle is capable of oxidizing or preferring to use more fat than carbohydrate that's a very early training adaptation and the reason it can do that is it's building up a lot more mitochondria a lot of the capillary supply to bring nutrients in and out of the skeletal muscle. And again, depending on what mode of training you're doing, there is either an, a, an increase in the muscle size per se, or at least an increase in the quality of the muscle. So there are many adaptations that take place. And these occur very, very quickly, such that an individual who can perhaps not run a 10 kilometers without stopping at the moment within six to 10 weeks is quite capable of doing that distance at quite a comfortable pace. So the adaptations occur very quickly, but as we know from uh, perhaps the COVID lockdown here, adaptations are also lost very quickly. And that's an, also an important point and probably something that needs a little bit more research since the classic early studies done in the 80s. There aren't really that many studies on loss of adaptations in the muscle, particularly in highly trained athletes. So if listeners are thinking of projects they want to do, some graduate students, I think an area of detraining or loss of training adaptations is something that clearly needs to be looked at, particularly in the elite performer. Yeah, yeah, that would be very interesting to to get some more uh, data on, certainly. Uh, in terms of the adaptations that you mentioned there, uh, mitochondria, uh, capillary density, and so on, uh, is there reason for athletes and coaches to really think about them specifically and try to target certain specific adaptations in training like we perhaps might do with uh, where you mentioned the heart and the lungs, uh, the respiratory system, and uh, well, the cardiovascular system uh, specifically is what I uh, were referring to. But uh, is is that something that we want to concern our- ourselves with at the muscular level as well? What's your view on that? Well, as far as the athlete's concerned, I think any training modality which increases the metabolic load on the muscle. Uh, And what precisely do I mean by that? You can go, for example, to exercise in the heat. It will impose an extra load, a metabolic load on the muscle and also the central circulatory system. You can go to altitude where the partial pressure of oxygen is lower, oxygen tension is lower. That induces an adaptation in the muscle by, again, conferring a greater metabolic load. So there are a variety of techniques. And I guess one of the Uh, most recently 
and highly topical ones is this training low with low carbohydrate availability. So very briefly, there's now very good scientific evidence to show that if an athlete wants to push that training adaptation further, somewhat paradoxically and against the recommendations of sports nutritionists, it may actually be beneficial to train for some of the sessions during a week or during a period of training, a mesocycle or a macrocycle with deliberately low glycogen. And what happens then is that the signal to the muscle is enhanced and amplified. And some of the major players in the muscle are upregulated to a greater extent when the athlete trains with low carbohydrate or low muscle glycogen availability compared to when they do the same session with normal glycogen stores. And what is the outcome of that? Would, would that be mitochondrial biogenesis or just more effective mitochondria if we go into the detail of what happens as a result? Yeah, look, the studies that we've done and have been replicated by other labs in, in Copenhagen and around the world show that some of the signals which are very, very important for mitochondrial biogenesis, such as the AMP-activated protein kinase and PGC1, the so-called master regulators of mitochondrial biogenesis, they're activated to a larger extent or to a greater magnitude when a subject actually trains with low glycogen. And, and I guess here's the interesting thing from the coaching perspective, because we're always trying to make our results applied and, and workable in the field to the athletes. The problem here is that the power outputs generally when athletes train with low muscle glycogen are in the order of 5 to 7% lower. Now, let's just re-emphasize that again. You can get a bigger bang from your buck as far as turning on some of the signaling pathways with low glycogen. But for the coaches, you've got to be very careful because if the athlete suddenly sees that their, you know, SRM data or whatever particular training modality that they're doing, the velocity, the power output or whatever is five to 6% lower, then the athlete starts to worry and Sometimes that's a big problem psychologically. So although I'm talking about physiological adaptations and pushing the muscle adaptation further, you have to really marry that with the, the athlete and coach's perspective who may not at certain times of the year want that actually to occur. So again, I would put this training block very, very early in the preparatory stages. I wouldn't literally put it in the four to six weeks before competition. So if you want to boost the mitochondria, if you want to get some of those extra adaptations at the skeletal muscle i would do this if you like in the in the pre-season build-up or at least during the aerobic base training of of an endurance trained athlete and of course we haven't talked about strength training yet but there would be absolutely no reason to do low glycogen training for for strength trained athletes we've done the study and we show that it actually impairs uh, contractile force so there's there's no point looking at this we're looking at a strategy here for athletes involved in events which basically last from you know 10 minutes up to several hours yeah uh, those are some great points and, and in addition i would say that uh, when you get closer to the race the uh, train low strategy because i am using it uh, with some athletes from uh, in my coaching practice and uh, i do think that the recovery from those sessions is longer than uh, a corresponding session at the same power output Uh, in just a normal glycogen uh, replenished state and that's also another reason to to be careful when you are closer to race and you really want to nail your key sessions even if you have uh, a glycogen replenished session planned for the next day 
then you might not get the same results because you just uh, put yourself into a little bit of a deeper hole the day before with a uh, with a fasted and uh, trained low session than you would have done having done the session just normally. So, so I agree with with the periodization of of this work completely. Well, look, if, I, um, if I can just follow up on that because that's a really really good point, and often you know the athlete is focused on a training session, but it's also about recovery from that session, and again. I think it's a really good point that you raise because we know from early studies that if you, firstly, there's two scenarios here. If the athlete is not ingesting carbohydrate during exercise, we know that certain interleukins, IL-6 and other, if you like, stress-related muscle uh, exokines are higher. But also there's the psychological state of it as well. And I know I've mentioned that before, but when an athlete is training hard and when they don't recover as fast that's just as an important thing so the carbohydrate availability is a very very important issue both not only during the exercise but post-exercise as well and I guess your point there leads me on to another thing is that uh, there are there are not many studies that have done this but it would be nice to look at withholding carbohydrate and we've kind of done this during post-exercise recovery and as you probably know you've read the studies yourself I'm sure We've looked at this sleeping low paradigm, um, and we can discuss that if you'd like in a little bit more detail. Yeah, that, that would be great. And uh, well, I have practiced that personally as an athlete as well. It's uh, kind of interesting, but really curious to to hear what your thoughts on that is. Well, how about you tell us what your experiences are in the field, and then I'll give you the science because I'm interested to see how it works in the field. We've obviously done this with athletes, but it's always good to get a you know another data point. So you sleep low, do you? Yeah. Yeah, I've done that. I, I've had periods where I do a weekly session where I do a high intensity session in the evening and then have a, a minimal carbohydrate uh, meal after basically trying to get no carbohydrate. That's impossible, but a very low amount of carbohydrate and sleep low. And then the, the next morning doing a, a pretty long steady endurance session, uh, fasted, uh, taking on a minimum amount of carbohydrate during that session, sometimes completely fasted, but more often than not, I will take on a little bit because the session is quite long, two and a half, three hours. And, uh, and yeah, just basically don't want to dig myself into too, uh, too deep a hole there. But uh, my experience has been that uh, the first few weeks that I did that, it was definitely quite uncomfortable to do that uh, session the following morning. And uh, also a lot of feelings of hunger, even if not necessarily feelings of a muscle depletion early on but from the very start feeling hungry because i wasn't used to not having breakfast and then as the weeks passed i actually started to feel uh, being able to do that session and feeling strong throughout and even when doing it with zero carbohydrate throughout a three-hour session for example at a at a very steady endurance pace so so i felt that actually the adaptations are quite big and quite quick to that specific sort of setup that i've done but also felt that doing it once per week because it's quite a potent stimulus i feel is more than enough i think that maybe otherwise you would compromise too much of the rest of your training well there's a lot of good points there and there's a lot of good practical stuff in there but that can also be backed up by science so as you probably know the study that we published um a while ago in journal of applied physiology with the first author was stephen lane himself a competitive cyclist and the interesting thing here and i just want to make this point is that it's very rare that the scientist actually comes up with some original paradigm. So the reason this train low started, I guess, is that athletes have actually been doing it for a long while. And I remember talking to some of the athletes at the Hawaii Ironman 
probably a decade ago. And there was a sports medicine seminar before the race and everything else. And some of the elite athletes came up and I'd given, given a talk on um, our paper on training low. And they said, oh, this is great. You know, you've you've just legitimized what we do in the field. And I'm thinking, hold on, you're a world champion. You don't need me to legitimize what training you're doing because it obviously works. And several of them literally 10, 12 years ago described deliberately withholding carbohydrate during the night, sleeping with uh, minimal carbohydrate on board. As you've said, it's almost impossible to get none, but, you know, minimal amounts of carbohydrate. And then going out the next morning, you know, for, in their case, three, four, five hour rides. And you make a really good point there because the people who have done this say almost exactly the same as you. The first time you do it, it's it's awful. You just feel awful and you think, well, wh- why am I doing this? The adaptations have to be really good because I'm feeling like crap sort of thing. But then after about two or three weeks, and that seems to be the time course, athletes say, you know, th- this isn't as bad as, you know, uh, it first started. So there's certainly some adaptation there. And I guess the question then becomes, how many times should you be doing this? And you've said probably once a week is enough. And I do tend to agree with that. But if this cycle of three weeks really has pushed the adaptations, then maybe you do it in blocks of three weeks and you don't need to do it again for some time. And I really believe that you have to actually really periodize these sessions and think very, very carefully about them. Because, you know, you've used the term quite correctly, digging yourself into a hole. And once you do get into that, I won't call it overtrained state, but at least not feeling particularly good about the workouts, then it's very, very hard to retrieve that. So, yeah, look, you've you've actually t- you've actually told the audience all about the science because what we did was keep the subjects in a glycogen replete state to do their high intensity session in the evening, much as you've said, so the quality of that session is not compromised. And then we put them to bed, as you've already said, with low muscle glycogen stores and with biopsy them to find out they've lost about fifty to sixty percent. So if you started a workout you would feel very heavy-legged. The the surprising thing to us, and that our subjects slept in the laboratory, that sleep was not disturbed at all, that your comments on feeling of hunger were very, very justified because uh, almost to every single subject, they said they were used to having breakfast, they weren't used to going out in a fasted state, and they found the very first time they did this extremely hard. So I think there's a lot of science to back up what you've said and vice versa. And again, I'd like to make the point that breakthroughs in training are usually made by athletes in the field, not scientists in the lab. And we merely come along and say, oh, that's that's pretty good. We can show you the mechanism. But again, it's it's the coaches and athletes who are pushing, I think, the scientists often rather than the other way around. Yeah. And how important do you think that the training low is, for example, even like taking it to the very uh, extreme, if you will, with doing something like a high intensity session in the evening and then not having any carbohydrate uh, after that session before you go to bed? Uh, Is that really essential, do you think? Or can this be done in a slightly lighter version where you just go about your regular day and then you simply go out and do a ride the following morning or a, a workout and you do that fasted and still get some of the benefits? Yeah, look, I mean, it's a very good question. And I've been asked this a lot of times at conferences and by coaches and athletes. And I guess the question you're really asking is, how low does your glycogen have to be to get that, uh, I guess, maximum stimulus from the training adaptation the next morning? And uh, there's there's a couple of reviews in the literature from James Morton's group and Graham MP and, and ourselves as well. And we've sort of hit upon this figure of, of around about 50% of your resting glycogen. So 
again, without getting into too technical details of muscle glycogen, wet weights and, and dry weights, the easiest way I say this to athletes is that how do you know if 50 or 60% of your glycogen is depleted? Well, you get up the next day and you feel very heavy legged even walking up the stairs. And that's usually a, a sort of litmus paper test for us. In direct answer to your question, do I think that high intensity session in the evening is is justified and do we need it? I, th I think the answer to that is more yes than no. And the reason for that is I do think you do need to start that next morning session with quite low glycogen levels, you know, 60 or 70 millimoles, uh, probably even less wet weight, which is around 50 uh, to 60% of your resting values. I don't think that unless you do that high intensity session that evening, that you drag your glycogen levels down, number one. Number two, the reason for doing that session in the evening, as, as we've pointed out already, is that you don't compromise the quality of the quality workout, if you like. So you're still getting that high intensity training session in at the power outputs or speeds that you want to. The next morning, yeah, it hurts a bit, but you've got the training session in the bank from the night before. And, you know, the psychological thing, again, I've emphasized it several times now, is important. If you can, if you can tough it out on that first week, then, as you said, it becomes, I won't say easier, but it becomes less aversive the second and third week. So I, I think, yes, I'd stick my neck out here and say, I really do think that high-intensity session in a glycogen loaded or repleted state the evening before is necessary and of course we've had some interesting anecdotes from coaches who get their athletes to do this and when you quiz the athletes on their nutrition it's clear that they've taken in far too much carbohydrate in the night and as you pointed out again it's hard to get no carbohydrate but sometimes athletes aren't aware of carbohydrate containing food so they've come back the next morning and you know they've had 100 grams of carbohydrate we're saying well that's not that's not sleeping low. So you've got to be careful with the nutrition as well. It's not just saying, well, I don't want any ice cream or any bread or any pasta. Foods, fruits and everything else contain carbohydrates. So to get a, a very low carbohydrate meal, you have to sort of think about that as uh, very carefully as well. Yeah. Okay, good, good. Great to hear your take on that. Now, what about intensity and duration and their impact on, uh, on uh, the cellular adaptations? Like, for example, if you compare just generally high intensity interval training and uh, longer workouts like the typical long ride or long run mm -hmm. how do they impact the adaptations and how do you want to uh, what are the implica implications of that for the training program well look the the high intensity training you know the hit training has received an awful lot of publicity and and scientific inquiry over the last I guess, decades, starting with some of the work from, you know, Marty Gibala's lab at McMaster University in Canada, and, and again, repeated in the Norwegian studies and, and some of ours in Australia, too. Uh, I think we've got to be careful here when we talk about high intensity training, because high, tra high intensity training for the athlete is, is completely different to the, to the man or woman in the street who is at the gym doing it, which you see quite often, and they're doing it for, for other reasons. For the athlete, training is for performance you know the athlete doesn't train to train they train to compete they train to race so it's completely different yes high intensity training is a very potent intervention there's absolutely no question of that it will get you from a to b as far as training adaptations very quickly but i'll put a caveat in that almost all the studies of high intensity training be they on semi-trained athletes and for the most part they're on college age males have been very, very, very short term. They've been four weeks, six weeks. Some of them in Norway have been up to four months again, but they're not with 
athletes. So is HIT or high intensity training a potent intervention? Yes. For the time that you spend doing it, it's very, very potent. Having said that, though, an athlete doesn't train just by HIT or just by endurance. So I think it's part of a a periodized training program, but I think it's been probably a little bit overplayed in the in the athletic literature. And again, you've got to be careful when you try and extrapolate the results from college age males who are, you know, with maximal oxygen uptakes of 30 to 45 mils to athletes who are a completely different animal. It's very potent. It does put tremendous, uh, if you like, metabolic load on skeletal muscle. But for the athlete, it has to be done at incredibly high power outputs if you're going to get the bang from the buck. So it's part of a periodized training program. And again, we've got to remember that the athlete is a completely different animal to the the person in the street who uses HIT perhaps two or three times a week just for cardiovascular fitness and, and getting from A to B as quickly as possible. Yeah, and if we look at elite athletes and the way they train, uh, it's quite simple, really. A lot of uh, just endurance training and uh, a lot of volume, generally speaking, and then they might have a, a few uh, quality workouts with some sort of intensity, which may or may not be above the quote-unquote lactate threshold. Uh, so maybe some hit, maybe something that is more submaximal but still uh, challenging. And uh, and they obviously they are at the top of the game, the, the top of uh, the pinnacle when it comes to endurance sports uh, with that approach of training over years and years and years. So that uh, leads us to conclude that probably a lot of the adaptations uh, are not from high intensity training but from just the base endurance training that they're doing and and just getting the balance right of of all of them so uh, is there something that we uh, can we just infer from from the way that athletes train that that is the optimal way of inducing uh, the adaptations that we're after or are there more mechanistic uh, evidence for how the different modalities of training high intensity and low intensity work yeah look that's a really good question i mean I remember being at Loughborough University in the 80s when Sebastian Coe uh, set four world records in 41 days. And there was a comment with uh, one of the coaches there that you could have trained him by running backwards. He was so genetically gifted. And I think we've got to be very careful here of saying, you know, just because athletes do this and they succeed, they're, they're successful because of that. They have very, very good genetics. They've chosen their parents wisely. Uh, and they almost start, you know, on the start line with that advantage. Having said that, the the trial and error method of coaches and athletes uh, has refined training practices such like you've got to assume that most people at the top of their game, you know, world and Olympic gold medalists are doing most things right most of the time. Now, that doesn't mean to say they're doing all things right all the time, but I'd be quite comfortable to say that, you know, I've I've talked to a lot of coaches and a lot of athletes over the last three or four decades, and uh, I'm quite happy to say that probably 90% of what they're doing is, is absolutely correct. I mean, if we look at a typical endurance athlete's periodized program, as you said, there's an awful lot of volume in it, an awful lot. And I guess, at least for swimming, there was this movement a decade or so ago of, you know, too many miles, we need to do more quality. But it's interesting how the pendulum has swung back to that. So firstly, it's a little bit sport specific. Uh, secondly, it's very event specific. You know, if your event is the Hawaii Ironman, you know, you've got you've got to do more than an hour of high intensity training. You've got to put the miles in. You've got to get those adaptations in the muscle. You've got to get the fueling right. You've got to get pretty much everything right on the day. So I don't think hit or high intensity training is a good substitute for 
for for the endurance miles, particularly if your event is is you know greater than ninety minutes or even perhaps a little bit shorter than that. Where I do think hit is is very important is is in that immediate uh, two to three weeks before a race when you really do need to sharpen. I would use it in the taper phase, for example. So we use much longer reps. We use the you know you've probably seen in the literature we've detailed them quite extensively eight times five minutes at around about 85 to 90 percent of vo2 max with a minute recovery we find that that is a brutally hard session the athletes are capable of doing perhaps two sessions of that a week for three weeks and then another couple of weeks where they might do much shorter hit type of training but again this is all on the background of an enormous base of endurance training which has been accumulated over over many many years yeah, and, and that's something, a topic that's always interesting because we have had a movement of uh, a lot of coaches adapting sort of reverse periodization where they do a lot of intensity in the early part of the, of the training season. And, uh, the, I guess the counter argument to that is that, well, the traditional periodization, it seems to be doing a good job in building up the athlete and then having them be able to better absorb and including recover from what well, perform and absorb and recover from the high intensity training when you do include it, which the, the reverse periodization paradigm doesn't necessarily do, although it uh, of course has uh, its uh, potential benefits, some arguments for it that seem logical, at least at face value uh, to it as well. But what you're saying here is more in line with the traditional periodization. So uh, would, is, is that something that you can comment on the, uh, the periodization aspect of of how you're using it is is there something like that being better better able to perform and absorb the training when you're including it in the very late part of the season well look we've we've talked and you know in the introduction you said this was about skeletal muscle but you've got to remember that particularly for weight bearing sports such as just as running when when you're doing the high intensity training on the track or wherever you happen to be doing it you know it's not just skeletal muscle that's being overloaded it's tendons and ligaments and and all the supporting structures around them so one of my main reasons not to include this at least for people who are uh, getting their high intensity training through running is that the risk of injury is phenomenally high and I think once you've got, you know, a period of several months of endurance background behind you, the whole skeletal system, if you like, is is better able to cope with anything that you throw at it. I mean, that's from a purely anatomical point of view, from a purely physiological point of view. Again, you need that stuff at the pointy end before the races. You don't need it early in the season because you're really just building up uh, a, a huge endurance base there. Um can athletes who have got a prolonged history of training get away with doing hit earlier in their build-up? Yes, probably they can. But for the novice, um, I, I don't think the reverse periodization, although it has some physiological merits, uh, I, I think the risks outweigh the benefits. And again, talking to the coaches here who you know I've had experience working with, that <laughs> they've tried it, but <laughs> they try it once and they don't try it again. So uh, I think that's probably the answer. The coaches in this instance know best, I think. So I'm not saying you can't do it. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it, but I'm saying you should think very, very carefully about when you do high intensity training. And and in our experience, and I'm trying to think of a study which would even back this up, but I don't think there are too many, uh, at least not in well-trained athletes. I think it's best left to the latter stages of a preparatory buildup and periodization rather than the early phase. 
I think there is one study by Steven Seiler on uh, comparing 16-minute, 8-minute, and 4-minute intervals, I believe, and how they ordered, sequenced those uh, those types of intervals, and they didn't find any big significant differences, if I recall correctly. In but that was in very well-trained athletes, I I believe. But uh, that's and that's obviously uh, they probably didn't do any of those. They were already training and had a good base when they started that. 16 week protocol or whatever it was 12 weeks 12 weeks perhaps i'm familiar so but yeah not a lot i think you've uh you've hit the probably the one and only study from steven sealer yeah and again they're very well trained subjects so to push the adaptation in already trained subjects is, is very very difficult and i guess i don't want to go back to the train low but we're absolutely amazed that when you do put in interventions such as training with low carbohydrate you can still shift substrate metabolism you can still do things in the muscle which you would have thought highly unlikely given that you know most of our athletes and even in our studies are have got a prolonged history of endurance training so it's the same as when you put them on a high fat diet when you put athletes on a high fat diet very well trained athletes and of course you're aware of the work from louise burke on the elite uh, olympic race walkers there you can double their rates of fat oxidation within a week now that's absolutely incredible and i guess here it it shows the enormous plasticity of skeletal muscle to adapt to pretty much anything that you throw at it so again high fat diet is a metabolic overload it's not what the muscle wants to see it wants to see carbohydrate very hard to train on but again it pushes that adaptation and in as little as a week so the plasticity of even muscle from highly trained subjects still remains intact and i think that's phenomenal and maybe just goes back to evolution that you know we had to we had to do things run away from woolly mammoths or we have to do this that and the other we had to run in periods of low carbohydrate i think it's an evolutionary conserved thing that we've got this ability in the muscle to adapt to almost anything that you throw at it given time Mm. now shifting gears a little bit i want to talk about uh, the different muscle fiber types that we have and how they might differ both in how they produce endurance performance, so just a little primer for the listeners that might not be aware of that, but also how might they adapt differently and how might we want to target different fiber types uh, based on what, uh, what our goals are and our limiters might be? Yeah, okay, very, very good question. All right, so um, I guess muscle physiology 101, we, we've got Uh, two main types of fiber fast and slow twitch fibers and i'll go into this in a little bit more detail one thing i want to say though now and i've had many many phone calls from parents or coaches wanting their sons and daughters to be biopsied to see what skeletal muscle fiber type they have and what event they're suited for this is absolute rubbish (laughs) if you know Uh, and you've been at school or you've competed in events, you know if you're a sprinter, you know if you're an endurance athlete. You do not need a muscle biopsy to confirm that. So the event that you do, you're probably better at that than anything else. And by definition, that is your fiber profile and it's suited to that event. So largely when we do biopsy athletes, and I going back to my days at graduate school with David Costell, Frank Shorter was one of the athletes and Alberto Salazar was another of the athletes that were biopsied in studies there in the 70s and 80s. And Salazar had an amazing 93% slow twitch fibers. Now, the slow twitch fibers, if you take them out of the muscle and contract them, 
their contraction speeds and their contraction velocities, as the name implies, are slower. They're highly oxidative, meaning that they like to burn fuel with aerobic pathways. In contrast, slow twitch fibers, which again can be divided into type 2A, Bs, Xys, there's lots of different nomenclature here. But basically, you've got two types of fast twitch fiber. The fast twitch A fibers, which depending on how you train them, can take on the characteristics, some of the biochemical characteristics of a slow twitch fiber. But again, depending on if you train them with intense power type training, can almost look like a type 2B fiber. Type 2B fibers are the very explosive fast twitch fibers, pure fast twitch you would expect 100-meter sprinters and powerlifters to have a, a predominance of those. Interestingly, if you take a, a biopsy from just an untrained subject, the type 2B fiber is not only the biggest fiber in cross-sectional area to start with, but it also has the most potential to get bigger. So it's no surprise that sprinters, A, are genetically uh, gifted to have a larger proportion of fast-twitch fibers and fast-twitch B fibers, and B, that when they do train them, those fibers hypertrophy or, or get larger to a greater extent than the other fibers. So the fast-twitch fibers are literally that. They contract fast. They have high glycolytic potential. They're involved in short, high-intensity bursts of exercise. Slow-twitch fibers, on the other hand, aerobic predominant fuel supply involved in events lasting several minutes to up to several hours. Uh, again, Yes, they can be trained to be a little bit faster, but uh, if you've got 60 or 70% slow twitch fibers, you're never going to win the 100 meters at the Olympics. So yes, muscle fiber bi bi biopsy type definitely determines your uh, suitability for athletic events. But again, it's not the only rate limiting step. Yeah, that's a great overview. And uh, this is just uh, me giving a, like a coach's perspective of, how I view them, basically, we have the slow twitch fibers that we have. So we're trying to to target them and just improve how well they work, but essentially, uh, with the different adaptations that we already discussed. But then we also have the potentially a lot of untapped potential in making our uh, 2A fibers uh, work really relatively well in an oxidative capacity, which for endurance athletes would be our target. So that is really an interesting uh, area of coaching. How can we uh, how can we target those kinds of adaptations and make our our 2a fibers uh, support the uh, the endurance work that the that the slow twitch fibers are doing and uh, give us the largest possible amount of uh, of muscle fibers to to work for a long duration with uh, with high fatigue resistance so can you talk a little bit about perhaps starting with that like what what are the things that we might want to do in training to target uh, that sort of uh, direction of how we want to uh, to characterize our, our 2A fibers to make them be more like the slow twitch fibers? Yep, look, that's a really good question. And I guess it's event specific. If you're doing something like the Hawaii Ironman, you really want to, if you like, transform all those 2A fibers to, to look like biochemically a slow twitch fiber. So the training loads involved there are huge volumes of very submaximal type of work because that's the type of training that you need to get the muscle, to get the fuel supply and everything else ready for an event such as, you know, an Ironman. On the other hand, you know, depending on uh, your event, again, if you're 
something like a stage cyclist uh, and you need power outputs at various stages to get up hills, to, to get the primes, to get the sprints, you need that 2A fiber to be able to turn on some glycolytic, you know, fast twitch power occasionally. So going back to the high intensity training, one of the aspects of the high intensity training that I really, really think is very beneficial is the fact that when you're working, and I'm talking about athletes we work with who can generate power outputs when they're doing one minute uh, work bouts of, you know, 600 to 700 watts, you're really asking every single muscle fiber to generate that tension on the muscle. So during those hit sessions where the power outputs or speeds are very, very high, you're almost recruiting all the fibers. And that's one of the benefits of the high intensity training that you are imposing high tensile stress on the skeletal muscles and by definition, recruiting almost everything that you can to do the work. And again, you've talked about fatigue resistance. I think that's a really a, a really nice term because any any race has an aspect of fatigue in it. There's absolutely no question about that. So what you're trying to do is to make the skeletal muscle adaptations such that the fatigue resistance is built up to be greater than it was before training across the whole range of fiber types. And again, there there isn't much... In fact, I'm struggling to think of a study which has looked at elite triathletes, such as the guys, you know, who compete in Hawaii and uh, are competing in, you know, eight hour, nine hour range there. I strongly suspect that they have 60 to 70 percent type one fibers. I strongly suspect that their two A's look almost like a type one fiber. And I suspect they have very, very few uh, type two B fibers. So, again, they're training an event which they are biochemically and morphologically suited to. So the training programs that can recruit a whole range of fiber types are those at the upper end. But again, if your event is one that doesn't particularly demand periods of high intensity bursts, then yes, you really want to make your 2A fibers almost look like a type 1 fiber, a slow twitch type of fiber. I'm glad you made that point about depending on the endurance event you're training for, uh, you want to retain some or even a lot of that glycolytic uh, production capacity of uh, of the uh, 2A fibers because um, my mind immediately went to the typical athlete that I coach, which is one focusing on half or full distance triathlon generally. So, but that's definitely not the only endurance sport. So, so the it is event specific, as you say. Uh, one question around this, uh, I have seen some data uh, on where you actually start recruiting more of those uh, 2A fibers. And uh, I seem to recall 70% of VO2 max or so, which is which isn't a high intensity, but it's not a very low, uh, just noodling along intensity either. So if you want to actually work on those fibers, it, to me, what I've been doing in coaching practice is to basically try to to get to sort of a tempo-like effort, essentially, to to make sure that we do that. Uh, is that something that you can shed some more light on? Well, look, I mean, if you look at the studies that were done by Philip Golnick and David Costell and Benk Saltine in the 60s and 70s, they looked at the patterns of glycogen depletion in individual fibers. And that's where a lot of this work comes from. And uh, the problem with it, not that it's problematic in terms of the science, is that these weren't very well-trained subjects. So I, I tend to think, you know, 70% is a pretty low threshold to start recruiting the the two A's and especially, obviously, the two B's from, from that perspective. 
Um, I, I think the other thing to remember as well is that, you know, many events, and let's just go back before we answer that question directly, many events these days, even though they're so-called endurance events, if you think of a lot of the big city marathoners these days, you know, the London, the New Yorks, think how many times it comes down to a sprint in the last kilometer. I mean, really, you have to be able to turn on that fiber and generate higher tensile strengths and velocities and if you haven't trained that, then it, it's not it's not going to be there on demand. So, again, you've stressed the importance of, you know, the half triathlons and the full triathlons. They're basically an event where you set out at a certain pace, a certain goal pace, and you hope that you don't fatigue over the duration of several hours. Well, the marathon is also like that, but the ability at the end of a marathon or the end of a stage race in the Tour de France it's not due to the, you know, the slow twitch fibers. It's due to the two A's and the two B's. So again, we have to remember that in training, that if you don't lose it, uh, sorry, you don't use it, you will lose it. So there has to be some aspects of training which tap into all those fiber types. And I, I think that's a very, very important aspect uh, that, that needs mentioning as far as the practical side of, of the training's concerned. And I've completely forgotten your question now. I've just got <laughs> well uh, to follow up on that. Well, you did answer it in a way because you said that uh, the the studies that showed that sort of seventy percent of the two max threshold for recruiting uh, the fast twitch fibers it might be low because of the subjects being untrained. Uh, so, which is I'm actually honestly surprised to hear that it uh, means that you would need to go uh, a bit higher. So maybe yeah. I don't know where you would want to put the threshold 80% of VO2 max. And actually we're approaching a lactate threshold at uh, that kind of intensity, uh, yeah. if not being there already. Is that, is that the, the conclusion that you would uh, draw? Well, let me, let me put a, a slight curveball in here. Another way to recruit these fibers, which is, uh, very easily done is is use different training modes and what what I mean by that is that for the runner you could look at downhill running or uphill running where the fiber recruitment pattern is totally different for example we know that when you run on the flat you're largely losing uh, using the gastrocnemius muscles we know that from the glycogen depletion studies but once you start running uphill and downhill there's a tremendous load on the quadriceps particularly the medialis and and the lateralis there. And again, you've got to remember that uh, every single muscle, even in the same athlete's body, doesn't possess the same amount of uh, fast twitch to slow twitch fiber ratio. So rather than put an intensity of it, I'd be a little bit more creative and think about ways that you can cleverly tap into those different fibers. And certainly the hit training's one, but the downhill and uphill running is a is another method of doing that. And of course, with that becomes uh some some other caveats in that downhill running may be associated with some muscle damage is muscle damage good for endurance sports do you need to have some damaged muscle to build up etc etc but again i'd i'd be reluctant to put a threshold on it i would more likely to think of different ways that you can recruit those fibers by being innovative in in training another way of course is plyometric training so for the endurance athlete there are some studies that have been done out of the Australian Institute of Sport with Philo Saunders. There's a lot of data from one of the Finnish groups, whose name I can't pronounce, but looking at middle distance runners and plyometric type training. Why does this work? Why is plyometric training very effective? Again, it's a fiber recruitment thing as well as obviously the tendons, but little different nuances there of training. So throwing some plyometrics in there, throwing some downhill work, throwing some uphill work. I'd rather think of methods 
of innovative training techniques rather than just put a number and a figure on it, if that answers that question. Yes, and it brings me to to my next uh, point here, which is, well, also in terms of cycling, I think it's quite easy to visualize it with just working at different cadences and basically a different, uh, if we want to get really uh, geeky on this, like a force velocity uh, point on the on the force velocity uh, curve of the of, of the working muscle. So, for example, if you're working at a high force uh, with low cadence, then despite the fact that your power might not be uh, needing to be that high, then you could potentially recruit a lot more of those fast twitch fibers because they are the ones capable of producing that that force in in a muscle contraction. Yeah. And the same thing would apply with the with the running, but and in running uphill specifically, and and when you're running downhill then you would also produce a lot of even more force because it's eccentric and and that means that you can produce more force but also you would potentially be able to combine that with a with a high velocity as well because of your your stride rate your cadence increasing there yeah. so uh, so I, I i agree with that that's uh, that's a really good good point that you that you bring that up and and yeah i guess the conclusion here is that maybe we don't need to think as much about the actual intensity but we would need to think more about how we produce that intensity with the mode of training and, and so on. Correct. And again, just one caveat here, you've hit it on, on the nail on the head here. I still remember lecturing to undergraduate students and they always think that if your cadence is high, you must be using fast twitch fibers. But I say, no, you can have a high cadence at 100 watts. You're not doing any work. There's no tension on the muscle. You're using slow twitch. So the speed of contraction is only one factor. Obviously, the load on the muscle is is another factor. And you've given the great example there of, of following up from what I said about the uphill training. You can have a very low cadence with very high tensile uh, stress on the muscle and be recruiting two A's and two B's. The cadence can be extremely high. And, you know, the novice will think, well, I'm using fast twitch fibers, but the resistance or power output very, very low. And again, you know, paradoxical to what some people might think you're using predominantly slow twitch fibers so there's a nice menu of different training modalities there that i think you can use very very creatively we haven't actually talked about swimming here we've talked about running and cycling it's very easy to do that but one of the sessions that i've seen some of the elite swimmers do and i i really don't know why is uh, that they're pulled along to swim at velocities literally with a pulley uh which which mimics you know swimming at two meters per second which is you know, 25 second, uh, 50 meter pace, 50 second, 100 meter pace, which is, is a reasonably good time for, for a, an elite swimmer. In fact, it's a very good time for an elite swimmer. But I don't quite understand that because even when I've asked the coaches, you're pulling them along at two meters per second, but they're not generating the force to swim at two meters per second. So look, there might be some swim coaches listening to this who can shed, shed some information on that. Um, one of the other ones which I have seen, though, is where my son, who's a competitive swimmer, literally is hanging onto the legs of someone else and then the coach suddenly gets them to explode from in the water. So they're pulling someone. And that's a really good way of increasing drag. But again, you've got to be careful because uh, swimming's a strange sport. You've got to do some of the training at the velocities. And although it's not a swimming lecture here, I, I often wonder why some of the elite swimmers are swimming 40, 50 kilometers a week when their events only last two minutes. Um, it's, it's, it's one of the questions which I've never really been able to get a satisfactory answer from, from the coach. They always say, oh, it's economy in the water. And it's like, well, yeah, maybe. But, you know, if you want your car to go in fourth gear, you don't do 
a thousand kilometers a day in second gear. I, I, I don't understand the swimming physiology sometimes. I really don't. But anyway, I, we digress. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I had a very interesting interview last night actually with uh, the Dutch swimming coach uh, Marcel Voda, who is uh, the coach of both pool and open water swimmers, but including both the men's and women's Olympic champions from from Rio. Uh, I think he, well, he coached the men's champion directly and worked closely with the women's champion. Either way, he talked about how for their open water swimmers specifically, the volume that's obviously a very different event that lasts an hour and fifty minutes or so. But uh, they swim 80 to 100 kilometers and they do the bulk of that is in second gear, as you say, low intensity training. But they also do a lot of sprint work. Uh, that, that is something that they do a lot. They don't necessarily do a lot of the sort of three, four minute intervals or two minute intervals or that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It's uh, like really quite comfortable for them low intensity or it's very high and then when they get closer to the racing they do a lot of race specific intensities as well so the first 90 minutes being one specific segment of that race intensity which is slightly lower steady and then the last 15 minutes is sort of progressive into basically an all-out swim towards the end so Mm -hmm. so that's how they work and uh and in terms of the the thing you mentioned there with being pulled, they he said that they use fins for that. And the the explanation he gave is that he wants them to work on the uh, the neuromotor patterns of uh, of swimming, but without necessarily having to induce the stress of of doing uh, all out swimming. So yeah. it's an explanation that that I uh, that, that I've heard. Uh, there might be others, and how well that actually. Uh, falls into the the science that might or might not exist i i don't i really don't know look it's an interesting one and i maybe i should go back and listen to your interview i didn't i didn't know you were doing that last night but um, the point here is that swimming is one sport which uh seems to be a little bit stuck in the you know i guess the paradigm that if it was this athlete did this then the coach carries on the paradigm so not much has changed. There was a massive swing in, in the 70s and 80s, particularly in the States, with a coach called Jim Councilman at Indiana University who who went absolutely crazy on high mileage. And then Dave Costell did some of his studies where, you know, he did less training and, and they got the same results. But again, these were with college-age swimmers. They were very short-term studies. So it, it's really, really difficult. Swimming, of course, is a non-weight-bearing sport where the whole cardiovascular dynamics are are crazily different because you're in the supine position. So, you know, you can have high intensity intervals and 15 seconds recovery and off you go again. Now, if we were to do that in running or cycling, you know, we'd, <laughs> we'd be dead within a very short period of time. So, yeah, swimming's different. We'll acknowledge that and, <laughs> and move yeah, on. Yeah, it is. But but I have often questioned that. Why is it so different? Because the recovery isn't just the, the weight-bearing aspect. It is the metabolic side of things. And that's yeah. that particular question about the... The work to rest ratio is, is something that I wondered many times. Wouldn't it be more effective to bring that more towards what we do in cycling and running? Mm-hmm. Because there is a lot of sort of work on the work rest ratios, or quite a lot of it anyway, in the in the literature. And I'm wondering if if that is one of those areas where swimming is just stuck in its ways, and it, like just a paradigm shift might might be useful. Well, the fact, the very fact that, you know, you can have swimmers swim the 50 and the 100 and the 200, you know, you remember Ian, Ian Thorpe's won the 100, the 200 and the 400. Now, you'd never get Usain Bolt. The equivalent time durations there would be for Usain Bolt to do the 100, the 200, the 800 and the 1500. That, that would be ludicrous. That would never, ever, ever happen. So 
something something is different about swimming you know we're we're both acknowledging that but um i just often wonder if you train purely as a sprinter you know 50 100 meter sprinter where your event is 46 47 seconds why are you swimming 50 60 kilometers a week i have no idea anyway coaches will probably go crazy at me for saying those things but it's it's an interesting thing from a physiological perspective you know i don't coach elite gold medal swimmers and therefore you know I have no right in even raising these questions, I guess. But I, I would like to see a bit of a paradigm shift in the in the swimming, as you say, to more to what the runners and cyclists are doing. But, you know, maybe maybe you and I don't know anything at all. <laughs> maybe not. No. But that is a very interesting point. I, I really think that that's a, a very eye-opening analogy with Usain Bolt. Mm. I know we're running low on time. If you have time, uh, I have two more questions that I'd like to ask. But uh, if you have to go, then please let me know. No, look, I've, I've got time for you. It's always good to chat to you. And I, I, I often learn <laughs> as much as well. So, no, fire away. We, we'll keep going for a few more minutes. All right, great. So uh, the first uh, question then that I want to ask is uh, that, uh, oh, I'm, I'm losing my question now. Uh, where was it again? Uh, well, let's start with this, the last one. Uh, what would you give us a final practical takeaway for the listeners when it comes to uh, to these adaptations that we've been talking about and how to uh, how to practically uh, create a program that uh, that will ma- maximize the adaptations that you that you incur? Well, well, that's a good question. I mean, firstly, talk to a coach or an exercise physiologist who who really has worked with athletes. You know, there's so much available. Uh, in social media and on the web these days and and a, a lot of it's not necessarily bad but it's not necessarily good either so i'd work with a, a coach and someone who's got some experience of working with with athletes or at your athletic level and your ability level uh, i guess number 2 i'd take a long term approach i mean rome wasn't built in a day uh, you're not going to get to be the level of athlete that perhaps you're aspiring to be in a short period of time most of the endurance athletes who we work with you know hit their career peaks late into their 20s it's a little different with swimming but again the age of the swimmers is increasing now it used to be phenomenally young so take a a a long-term approach Uh, thirdly i say don't be afraid to experiment with different training methods and uh, and mix it up a little bit i think we can get very stale using one particular method and you know if something isn't working for you uh, go back and, and have a look at that and, and see why perhaps. And, and I guess that's my fourth point is very, very, very important. If you're a, if you're a, a young athlete, if you're a, a veteran athlete or an elite athlete, you need to keep a training diary. You need to say, this is what I've done. This is the input. This is the output. Is it working? Is it not working? So I guess the final point there would be to have a scientific and systematic approach. And, you know, I go back to my 16-year-old son. I say, well, you know, why do you think you felt bad that week? What have you done different? He said, oh, I didn't fill my training diary. And I said, well, you know, how are we meant to know type thing? So try and be scientific about it and, and you know, always have fun. But it's always, I think, very revealing. I still get my training diaries from, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. And I look back and think, you know, yeah, maybe I'd have done that differently now. Maybe knowing what I do now, <laughs> I would have changed a lot of things, but that's hindsight. So I guess there are a few principles um, just to keep in mind as as the listeners might want to embark on a training program or, or have a specific goal in mind. And I think it is good to have a, a specific competitive goal in mind. Remember, if you are competing, you're training to compete. You're not training to train. In other words, I've seen people with very good training diaries 
that doesn't really cut it for me. You're training to compete if that's your goal. So therefore, everything should be aimed towards that final goal, be it a marathon, a Hawaii Ironman or whatever it happens to be. Absolutely. And that's all the more important to keep in mind these days because platforms like Strava, general social media, I think makes it more difficult these days to to have that in mind and not the the workout itself in mind. And um, yeah, hero workouts can uh, can really ruin a season in terms of the race results if that's what you're going for because of Strava and social media and, and so on. Yeah. And I remembered the other question I wanted to ask now. We've been talking about uh, muscular skeletal adaptations here, but where how do they sort of relate to the cardiovascular adaptations and uh, tendons, bones, ligaments, and so on? How important are they? Obviously, we need to look at the holistic picture of the athlete, but we for this interview, we have focused a bit on, the, uh, on this one side of the picture. But uh, if you can... Would it be more common for athletes to be limited cardiovascularly, for example, compared to uh, to peripherally in their muscle cells? Look, that has been debated for years by people, you know, far uh, wiser than myself, Benk Saltine, David Costell, etc., through the ages. So your question rephrased is, is there a central limitation or is there a peripheral central being, you know, heart and lungs and the cardiorespiratory system or peripheral being muscle? I'll give you a very, very simple answer. I think in uh, athletes who are naive or not even athletes, individuals who are starting to train, there's no question that they give up because they're breathing heavy and they're cardiovascularly limited. Um, they don't like to sweat. They, you know, they puff very easily and think that's a sign of fatigue and everything else. I think the longer you train, the more experience the, that you have with training, uh, you know, you've got a prolonged history of background. I, I think the skeletal muscle, therefore, is probably the right limiting step. But you also touched on something that we did mention earlier, the tendons and ligaments. And I've got a mantra with my 16-year-old son again to bring him up. You can't be fit before you're healthy. And I think a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that, you know, I can run, I can swim, I can cycle, I can do this. One thing that we haven't touched on, and it is way out of my uh, league of expertise is the mechanics of sport and that's why i said in the previous question you need to get a coach to look at your technique you really must get the technique right because i can swim all i like i am never going to swim 24 seconds for 50 meters or 50 seconds for uh, 100 meters no matter how many hours i spend in the pool my technique is rubbish so athletes in some sports don't self-optimize and again, I think it's really, really, really important, even before we start talking about whether you're cardiovascularly limited or peripherally limited in the skeletal muscle or the tendons and ligaments, to get a coach because you, you may well be biomechanically limited. And I think that's a very important aspect. And again, you know, you're a coach working in the field with a, an extensive knowledge. I, I don't think you can replace a, a good coach, to be honest, in, in however level you happen to be whatever performance you happen to aspire to so again in the previous question i said get a coach and i will emphasize it again i don't think you need to worry about what limits you i think you need to aspire for good goals and have a coach who knows what they're doing who can prepare you optimally they'll tell you what the problem is very very quickly and you know no amount of uh, textbook reading or uh, online stuff will do that for you so i think that's probably a a good place to end and a, a good plug for the coaches because I really do believe that, as I said very early on in the piece, that 
it's lovely doing sports science. I love the job that we do, but often some of the things that the coaches have come up with have given us the best ideas, the train low, for example, the high intensity interval training. Uh, I think we can learn from the coaches as much as the coaches can learn from us. I really believe that. Uh, that's uh, that's great. Uh, thank you for the plug. And and I do agree that everybody would benefit from from a coach. Uh, just to to give my own sort of final take home messages from uh, following up on this answer that you gave when you said that the more novice athlete is probably limited by their centrally and but the more experienced athlete might be more limited uh, peripherally. Uh, that's basically for the more advanced athletes maybe a good uh, sort of uh, nudge to to have them try some of the different aspects of of improving the peripheral adaptations that we've talked about today like for example training low uh, altitude and heat and i'll link to a paper that uh, a review paper that you have on these three topics uh, covering all of them so that listeners who want to to learn more can can go and and read that uh, but uh, but also uh, I think that that's where the coach comes in. It's easy to go really all in and doing just way too much of this. Like you want to get the balance right, and as we talked about, there is the train low strategy is a very potent strategy, but it's very easy to overdo it and and then not get the the performance improvements that you're looking for. So so that's I think where we're working with a coach comes in to to get the balance right of how much you do of these stimuli because even though we know what stimuli are then finding how much to do of that the dose response relationship essentially is where is what the what what the trick is really and what is the most difficult part yeah now and let, let me just finish with an anecdote and i'll wrap up in 60 seconds i remember when our train low paper came out this is training with low carbohydrate not um, not altitude and about oh, three or four months after it came out, I got a call from a coach and he said, I read your paper, you know, it's been on social media, blah, 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 blah. It's rubbish. This doesn't work. My athletes have fallen into a hole. They're just in a, in a massive heap. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, training low. I've been training low six or seven times a week. I've done it for three weeks. They're, they're going downhill. I'm like, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. If you look at the paper, it says do this a maximum of twice a week. And often again, the science message gets mixed up. So, you know, that was an example of where a study was publicized, the results were publicized, but no one actually actually went and read the study, which said, you know, maybe this is good to try for two or three weeks, twice a week. So, yes, if you if you misinterpret the science, you can end up uh, in a massive mess. So, again, moderation is the key here. So, look, thanks for talking. It's been it's been it's as usual. It's always nice to. Uh, to shed some ideas you know there's a few controversial things that we've said but um yeah hopefully your listeners will get something out of this and uh, happy training i'm sure they will thank you so much john uh, it was a pleasure as always and uh yeah the previous episode with you is one of the more popular ones on the podcast and i'm sure this one will be as well so thank you very much you're welcome you take care I hope that you enjoyed that episode. Uh, be sure to send me feedback about this episode and other episodes. By the way, I always appreciate reading uh, any sort of feedback, whether it's good, bad, neutral, constructive criticism, etc. It helps me improve the podcast. So I really appreciate all those emails that I get and I hope that you continue sending them in. You can find the show notes for this episode on scientifictriathlon.com with links to related episodes and a bunch of the studies that we uh, on the topics that we discussed today. Uh, 
on Thursday, we have another Q&A episode coming out. And then next Monday, I interview Drs. Kush Joshi and Joel McKay on the topic of blood testing and biomarkers for endurance athletes. So something we have not discussed before really on the podcast. And I hope that you'll enjoy that. It's a very important topic. If you are looking for training plans or coaching services, go and check out scientifictriathlon.com where we have all the information about all of our products and services. And for any further information, you can just simply send me an email and I'll get back to you on that. But if you are looking to take your triathlon to the next level, then uh, as John said in the interview, getting a coach is uh, going to be really important. And that's something that I hope that many of you realize and uh, go and consider scientific triathlon coaches as an option. Big thanks to our sponsors that make this show possible. Firstly, Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. You can take their free online sweat test to get a good estimate for what your sweat sodium concentration is. And then you can match the electrolyte supplements that you take with that result, that uh, those that sweat test result. And you can get 15% off the Precision Hydration electrolytes with the promo code that Triathlon Show 15 and thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Go and check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses. These are all designed to be as good as they can possibly be. Raise the bar in each given product category. And I really can't recommend them enough. You can get 20% off their products on with the discount code that you can find on roka.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.